Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and today I'm really excited to be speaking to Jeff Emanuel. Jeff has had a fantastic career in financial markets and investing, and I think you'll find him really interesting as he talks about EFM, the funds management group that he established. We also touch on uh, his influences and background as an accountant with Deloitte, then a top-rated banking analyst at UBS, and then an early stage investor into many high growth companies like Magellan Financial Group, to name the least. Jeff's company EFM manages $360 million US based out of Hong Kong across four strategies, including two private equity funds, a listed and a listed uh, fund as well. Those four strategies combined have produced 27% per annum compound annual growth since inception, so stunning performance. Please remember that this podcast and the series isn't designed nor is it a specific recommendation of any one investment. We encourage people to listen to the disclosure at the back of the podcast and also to seek advice before making any specific investments. I hope you enjoy this uh, podcast as much as I did. And please remember to send me your feedback at david.clark at codacapital.com. Enjoy. Welcome to Inside the Road. Thanks very much, David. Jeff, perhaps you could kick off by giving us a bit of insight into your background and how you came to be in the position you're in at the moment. Yes, absolutely. Um, Australian grown, uh, grew up in Melbourne, after arriving from London, finished high school accountant in my 20s, banking analyst in my 30s, ran UBS equities in my early 40s, and moved to Asia and uh, worked in M&A as an investment banker after that, and um, set EFM up in my late 40s. And EFM's the name of the firm? EFM's a funds management business I've set yes. up. It's a specialist asset manager, and it's set up out of Hong Kong. And we specialize in global equities, uh, particularly in financials and technology. Okay. Well, let's back up. I'd like to maybe dig into some of the backgrounds and the learnings as a way of understanding what shapes your thinking at the moment. So um, I heard accountant in there. Am I right in thinking you're at Deloitte? Yes. Okay. That's right. um, how has that shaped your thinking as an investor now? Well, I think everything shapes your thinking as an investor. Everything is additive. You know, they, they, there's an old saying I grew up with, which is everything you do in life makes you a better investor eventually, and um, the mistakes and the successes. So as an accountant, I came through school of 87 and uh, worked on a number of cleanups through the early 90s in Melbourne, Victoria, and um, that rolled through my 20s, so um, very much school of, of tough knocks. Mm-hmm. And uh, as an analyst, uh, very fortunate to cover Australian banks for 12 years, and they went from very small, $5 billion each companies uh, to being three out of the four have been in the, in the top 20 banks in the world today. So very, very fortunate to cover them and um, learnt a lot. And during a time where the Australian banks grew profitable, expanded their businesses, 
participated in the in the superannuation market in Australia, did an amazing job over a long period of time. And um, it was nice giving a bit back because during my time running UBS Equities and the GFC came along, we uh, happened to raise uh, and recapitalize all four of the big banks during my time there. So I felt uh, very, very rewarded by, by that experience. Um, on the investment banking side, I think you just learn different things. Um, more technical, very difficult. You're trying to make transactions that are inherently difficult transactions easy for your clients. Um, so I feel like I've been blessed with a very wide range of experience, particularly in financials and tech. I think you undersold yourself a little bit there uh, in terms of your background in uh, as, as a banking analyst and, yeah, and, and the rating. Am I right in thinking, or I may have read somewhere that you were the top rated banking analyst for four or five years in a row? Is that Would that be right? <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a bit like uh, old newspapers, good for uh, fish and chips, <laughs> but uh, absolutely, absolutely uh, did well and uh, worked hard to do it and very proud of that, but uh, also very fortunate to, to get that opportunity. And where, when you look at the banks at the moment, what do you think of the Australian banking environment? Yeah, I mean, it's been, it's been about over a dozen years since I've covered the banks as an analyst. I think that the economy is doing it a little bit tougher. I think the banks would say themselves they've made a few mistakes running their own businesses. I think uh, regulation is more difficult and more awkward for them these days. And so I think um, they've got their challenges ahead. Having said that, you know, in a world where global banks have similar problems, Australian banks are still pretty profitable and the dividends are good. So I think it comes back to what you're buying if you, if you own them. And if you're happy getting great dividends, I, I think they're a decent investment. And do you think the Australian public is getting a good deal between the trade-off of stability v, v competition? You mean competition? In the banking area oh, between I see. banks. So you know, they've been protected by government policy, which has arguably led to very high levels of profitability. And some may say you know, a lack of innovation and uh, competition between the banks. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I, I think that um, if you look now, there are a bunch of neobanks appearing on the scene. Mm -hmm. There are a bunch of non-bank financial lenders that are being given a lot of money by the share market to grow. Use Afterpay as a, as a great example. And they've made successes off it. So I think the system is healthy. You know, whether, whether you could rebalance the system a little bit, is always hard to know, but um, I think the opportunity is there for competitors to come in and win. Okay. So you retire from the corporate world as such, um, and you, you, you take some time off and then form funds management business, or yes. was that immediately after the sort uh, of No, I had, I had two years off and um, came back and, and set EFM up.
in terms of EFM, can you give us an overview of what it does, how it does? And you've, you've talked a little bit and mentioned some investment sort of focuses, but if you could give us a little bit more colour on that, it would yeah. be good. So, um, you know, my mindset as an investor has always been investing in growth, growing companies, emerging winners. I've been fortunate to, to catch a couple of those over my life and um, really enjoyed it. And I felt that that was something, you know, I could actually build upon. So the business was set up as a global growth equities manager. And we specialize in financials and technology. And we invest in both public and private companies because private companies don't just compete with other private companies. And the same for public companies. So if you're truly going to understand a business and what it does and understand its competitors, you need to look at both sides. Um, so we felt there were good opportunities in both. We felt um, we shouldn't be restricted by geography, but being re restricting ourselves into technology and financials made total sense. And um, those two spaces have been converging. We're absolutely at the forefront of that convergence. And that's where you're getting a lot of the growth. A lot of the new technology companies, they're built on eyeballs. And what do eyeballs need to be successful? They need a monetization strategy. And if you look at a financial company, what does it need to truly succeed? It needs technology. So we felt with the history I've had and the group I've assembled um, that we've actually got a great team and a great approach to, to identifying existing winners and, and, and emerging winners and upcoming into the space. You flagged then that you were um, smart enough to invest in a couple of companies that have done particularly well. And I think uh, on the record, uh, it, it, it's known and been published that you're an early investor in uh, Magellan Financial Group, uh, the group that yes. Hamish and Chris McKay have uh, Mackay have run and built and has been wildly successful. Um, talk about that process of A, how you identified it, and, and B, I'd be particularly interested in how you stayed invested. Thank you. Um, so uh, Goodman Group and Magellan were the two companies that took most of my, my spare money, and not spare money, <laughs> you know, I... I geared and I borrowed and uh, stayed in there as long as I could with both of them. Um, and they both have some similarities. Um, Greg Goodman was, was an absolute entrepreneur. He was a winner, had identified a world-leading segment in an industrial property, had identified management structures and Australian REITs, which would allow him to manage scalable assets. And, you know, building sheds don't have as much risk as building office buildings or anything else. Um, and so I didn't, don't want to simplify that, but, but industrial property is easier to construct, uh, manage, etc. And so I got behind that and, and really felt, you know, very fortunate to be on a, on a global winner. And, um, Chris Mackay uh, was, was a person I'd, I'd worked for at UBS and uh, had the greatest respect for Chris. Um, very similar to Goodman, 
both Chris and Hamish were founders and they um, were aligned. They owned a lot of the business and they're great starting points for backing people in emerging winners. So back the people in both cases, back the business concept. And, you know, at the time um, Magellan was set up, very small amount of money coming out of the superannuation system in Australia was being deployed into uh, global equities. And I really felt that that could only increase. And I couldn't think of two better people to, to back. And uh, so they took, they took all my money since that point. And, um, you know, why did I stay with it? Well, I stayed close to them and I stayed close to how the business was performing and the share price will do what it does. So but that if, company, just to remind our listeners perhaps of some of the dynamics on that that we're alluding to, is I want to say that company was backed into an entity um, to start with. And, and what was the trading price when it first hit the market? Uh, yeah, ballpark. So, dollar fifty, and it's now sixty, sixty plus dollars. Sixty plus dollars. Yeah, and it's and it's been an amazing 13, 14 years for them, and uh, they've they've delivered amazing value. And you know, Magellan is one of the world's leading asset managers now, and it's homegrown. So, so yeah. So what I'm really interested in is lots of investors would look at that and look at their whatever their reporting process is annually, let's say, and and they may say, well, look, this has been up by this. They're very tempted to take money off the table, but you seem to have stayed significantly invested for a long period of time. Yeah. So how do you do that? I guess one of the big things is when you think about a company, not as a share price, but as owning a part of the business, then you know if a business is in good shape and what it's hopefully going to achieve into the future. And if you believe it'll keep growing and doing well, then there's just no reason to trade it out because the hard work, some of the hard work is in identification and tracking. So why would you go to something totally new and try and find it all over again and potentially make new mistakes when you're already on a winner. So that's very much the philosophy of how we've managed the business. And um, we've had some new winners as well through that process. Um, We've been behind a company called NVIDIA, Mm -hmm. which is an amazing global success in visual computing. And um, they are US-based we got in there when they were a valuation of $20 billion. They're now $120 billion. We've gotten behind a, a bunch of private companies that have become public, uh, including PointsBet. And we're yep. the, the biggest shareholder in PointsBet, which is uh, we invested when it was worth $8 million. It's now uh, closer to a billion dollars listed on the share market. Um, and their business is, is this online betting? I'm not familiar with the company. Yes, it's sports betting. Sports betting. And um, they've um, worked their way into the US market and they've gone about winning state-based uh, licenses and they've been very, very successful doing it. And points one, is it? Is uh, another? Block one. Block so one. Block Sorry. one is a, is a large blockchain um, software developer. Yes. And they've developed a software that um, 
50% of the world's blocks, blockchain transactions operate on their version of the blockchain. So uh, that's in our privates fund, but um, yeah, that's, that's not a name well known here, but it's a, it's a good company. Okay, and within EFM you have, am I right in thinking you've got about four different strategies? Yes, we do. O what are those strategies and what are they seeking to do? So um, everything we do is about growth. So we're always chasing growth equities, but we've put um, things in different funds where they're either private or they're public. So the two private funds are VC and what we call growth equity. And the two public funds are hedge fund and a mutual fund. So um, the mutual fund is, is our flagship product. And it's 40 of the best names we know around the world. Again, in financials and technology. So very proud of that product and think we've got a nice mix of emerging winners into the world and established winners that are, we think will remain successful. What's the name of that fund, Jeff? It's called the FST, the Financial Services and Technology Fund. Okay. Rightio. And the private <laughs> ones are PLC, is that correct? Yes. So we, okay. we keep them a bit separate. But, uh, well, PLC comes about from the origin of those funds, and that was Singapore. And okay. um, a lot of people know Singapore as a um, Singapore or Lion Town. But we found that uh, the Chinese had actually named Singapore Pulau Chang. And... Uh, that's hard to pronounce, so PLC is much easier to pronounce, <laughs> and that's what we did. And the track record... And that was, that was back record. in the second century AD. Okay. So it was well before Singapore got, got named a couple of different ways. Okay. And, and what's the track record of, being, of those four strategies been like? So the, the, um, in total, we've delivered uh, a compound growth rate, so over, just over four years of 27% per annum. Yes across everything. Uh, the privates, the, the first VC private fund is up um, sixfold in total. And um, so that strategy is closed off. Mm -hmm. And our FST, which is the flagship fund I mentioned on the public side, yes, that delivered 27% last year. Okay. Um, so we're, we're really happy with the way things are going. And, and I guess it matters less what, what we've done so far. What matters, I think, is if we can get through 10 years at 20% plus per annum, and that, that's not going to be easy, but if we can achieve that, we would have done an amazing job for people. That's in the unlisted fund? That's or across, across everything, whole... yeah. Wow, that, yeah, that would be saying something. And you talked about alignment of interest in people that you invest in. For investors coming into this fund, how are they aligned with you and the founders? Yeah, we're, we're totally, totally aligned. So my money sits uh, in the business and it sits in our funds and it takes up, lots of, it's a very large chunk of what I have, it's a dominant chunk, and it uh, takes up every minute of my thinking outside family and friends. Now, before we talk and dive a little bit more deeply into fintech and AI and machine learning, which I'm really keen to do. Um, offices in Sydney, Hong Kong, and Calgary. Sydney and That's Hong right. Kong, I get. Calgary, I, 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 I'm, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm trying to find a link. Yes. Um, we have an office in Melbourne too. Okay. Um, 
and and the Hong Kong is the the main office. So everything else is relatively small and emerging. Yes, and hopefully one day a bit larger. Okay. So Calgary is uh, uh, it's not the skiing, even though the skiing is amazing. We uh, there are a lot of similarities um, with with Calgary or the state of Alberta and Western Australia with resources, and we felt that. Um, the types of investments that we offered around technology and financials and that opportunity for people to participate in those investments would be really well received as we would hope in Western Australia to also be received well in Canada. And Alberta is the um, richest energy state in North America, so richer than Texas, which a lot of people don't realize. So there is a lot of family money and a lot of energy-based money there. So that's the, the backdrop. The reason, okay. It's, now, a, it's a sales office. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the trends that you see coming in, in terms of FinTech, artificial intelligence, machine learning. Um, talk to, you know, for, for these are terms to many of our listeners that they've heard, but understanding uh, at, at, at a real fundamental level, you know, it's, it's really interesting. I, I often refer, uh, when I talk to clients about, you know, when they talk about technology affecting in this area, the experience with my mother, you know, at 72, 73, I'll talk to her and I'll say, mum, you know, you're, you know, you're doing mobile transactions and you're a mobile computing expert. And she'll say, what are you talking about? Stop being ridiculous, Dave. And I say, well, what's that in your, in your, in your, hand there and she'll say, oh, this is my iPhone. I say, show me what you're doing on that. And, you know, she's yeah. watching Netflix, she's transferring money, she's with social media with the kids. Um, there's a whole heap of transactions that she's doing. So if you talk about it in those terms, she's not really identifying at that, although that's what's at the back end of doing that. So yeah. can you talk, break it down for our listeners to give them maybe some examples of where we are today and where you see it going in the future and what the sort of investment thesis opportunity is? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, technology has just enabled all of us to become a lot more efficient, a lot smarter and quicker. And, you know, the, the example I give to my 12-year-old is this iPhone that I've mm. got in my hand. That's the makings of a person. You know, it's got a set of eyes. It's got a mouth. It's got ears. It can't feel, but we pretty much tell it what we feel. Well, it's got push-sensitive haptics <laughs> on it, right? It's got that. So um, what I'm getting at is that we've embraced and we've introduced into our lives something that's the closest thing to a living organism. And um, they know a lot more quite often about what we're doing than other people. So that is changing everything. It's changing the way people work, live, communicate. You know, for us, a technology company has gone about growing its business primarily through offering people a differentiation. And by doing that, it collects what I call eyeballs. But it doesn't always take money from those eyeballs. So how it goes about monetizing the, those eyeballs is a financial strategy. And so we feel really well-placed to be part of that journey for a technology company and figure out which ones have got that bit 
going and, and who can therefore migrate to a profitable position and a more sustainable existence into the future. So, so that's one aspect. The, the other aspect of technology is that people, when they go about their daily lives, it's just so different to 20 years ago. And so there's an emerging generation of people that just don't understand what life was like before technology. And they will be part of the future of business, the future of successful businesses, part of the creation of new things that haven't even come about yet. And AI, machine learning, you know, these are all new concepts. But they work off the same premise that people like to be more efficient. They want to get on and do what they enjoy, not uh, spend half their lives doing traditionally how I grew up and, and how my parents grew up. So if you're at the forefront of that generational change, more people use something, the more valuable it becomes. And if companies are clever, they'll monetize that and turn that into a business. So, um, you know, we constantly look at artificial intelligence. We look at companies like SpaceX, for example, the, the technology it takes mm -hmm. to land a rocket on a floating barge in the middle of the ocean. That's It's got a lot of waves and... Mm -hmm. Would seem a neat trick. Amazing, amazing technology. And the, the number of adjustments that you need to make to successfully land on a barge like that. You could just imagine the iterations. That, that is a total mix of visual computing, edge computing, learning on the go, the way we would, mm -hmm. <laughs> we would traditionally say it. And so all of that is fascinating because I think if you can get close to it and understand it, you're in a better spot anyway, because that is the future and it's, it's coming to us. But I think that will also get rid of a lot of old business models that are just outdated. So it's you know, horse and cart to cars and railways mm -hmm. and then planes. And it's just a natural evolution in life. How, Jeff, how do you think about valuing and, and where do you place in the spectrum of what's most important to you? I, I'm interested in when you're talking before about, you know, think about this as being an owner of the business and you know the trajectory of it, whether you're happy to stay invested or not. But is there a point in time where you say, look, the valuations that um, people are paying for these versus the financial trajectory or what we see today, it makes it too, too risky to, 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 to put money to work into some of these companies. And I, I guess it's interesting in Australia, we don't have a lot of technology companies. And I see you talk about AI that happen beat its numbers uh, that it's just reported on. Um, but we're seeing such demand for these type of companies that the sort of multiples don't represent anything like traditional valuation metrics people are comfortable with. You know, I'd imagine they're very different to when you're breaking down a Goodman and working out the discounted cash flow on an industrial property. 
how do you think about or get comfortable, given that you're talking about a whole paradigm shift here, in, in how you value that? Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's never straightforward. And the first thing I'd say is we're absolutely not into concept investing. And maybe it's the, the accountant in me, it's, it's you know, the gray hair, the, the dog years of learning. Eventually, everything has to be sustainable. And sustainability starts with profitability. And, and that's how you keep people employed, you keep them in business, and you deliver a return to your shareholders. So whenever we think about a concept, we go way past that. And sometimes you've got to go past that in decades, preferably in years, not decades. But sometimes you have to go out five to ten years and say, okay, how does that profitable, scaled-up model look? But you do have to have a picture of the end state. And then you decide how much you want to discount those returns by. So in other words, how many, how many years do you have to wait? And how many years can the model fail before you see those returns come into your pocket? And I think that's um, never an exact science. And every opportunity, every business idea brought to you is different. So it's, it's always the hardest thing to judge. Jeff, can you talk us through what your due diligence process typically looks like before you get comfortable enough to invest in a company and how you go about doing that? Is it something where you'll invest and then continue to get um, greater comfort with the business or what's your methodology? Yeah, so there's pre-investing diligence and there's post-investing diligence. And um, I think you've always got to question whether the rationale for what you did is in place or maybe it's improved. Sometimes it improves. But you've always got to ask that question, which is, is the company doing what I thought it would? And is that segment or that industry behaving in a competitive sense? in the way I expected. And when you think about us and what we do, there are nine of us. Uh, we're research heavy and we're all fundamental thinkers. And we think about owning a business as a piece of a business, not a share price. So the, the team is aligned, but all have different backgrounds and experience. Some more practical around technology, some more academic around equity research. But we work as a pod, and out of that, we hopefully pluck the best outcomes from all our thinking. And then in the post-diligence phase, um, it's a small room. So as a group, we're constantly debating you know, whether something's working or not. And so it's a, it's a never-ending process of hitting F9 until you get it right or wrong. Jeff, <laughs> and you do get things wrong, so... We've spoken about um, a number of the winners here and what you've learned from those. Um, there must also be some not so winners or losers in there somehow. And sometimes, you know, I'm often told by smart people that uh, you often learn more from those losers than you do from the winners. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about some of those in the portfolio that you've learned from 
or yeah. your past portfolios and investment experiences? Yeah, I think um, if, you, if someone tells you they're not making any mistakes, they're not really taking any risk. And it's pretty unlikely they're going to make real money eventually. So there are a long list of mistakes <laughs> over my time, but uh, I think you have to embrace them and you take away from them, A, that you made the mistake, because we do. And, um, you know, don't be scared of it, but just make the mistake. But hopefully you don't make the same mistake a number of times. You can make other mistakes. <laughs> um, probably the one that, um, the ones that I would say hurt the most for me were in the VC first fund we set up, which is now closed. And I mean, that's making people six times their money. So overall, we've done well. But there were a number of investments where we looked back and we broke them down and they hadn't worked. And they were in the areas of ad tech and travel tech. And, um, you know, in hindsight, um, we're best at fintech. <laughs> mm -hmm. And the things I've explained, blockchain AI, we strayed into that space and we ended up making making some mistakes. And um, as a space, it's not as attractive generally as the ones we're in and happy to be in. And then there were some unique circumstances with each one. But um, usually your biggest mistake is choosing the wrong people to back. And so that's just something, you know, if it's your best judgment at the time, you can never regret it, but it's a mistake in hindsight. And then with business models, not all businesses are made equal. So those spaces in particular I described weren't great for us. But you live and learn each time. Jeff, before you make an investment, what's the sort of minimum hurdle that uh, an investment needs to meet in terms of a criteria or similar for it to get the go-ahead from yourself? So we, we look in our public investments, so our listed shares, we look for an absolute minimum of 15% per annum in potential returns from a company. And if we can't see that, we just don't make the investment. So it's a pretty high hurdle. In our private companies, it's it's even higher than that, above 25%. So we're a high growth targeting investor. And um, part of that means you do make more mistakes, but what it means is you give yourself an opportunity to grow at the sort of um, annual growth rate I've described, the 27%. Fantastic, Jeff. I really appreciate your time and your insight. Thank you very much for joining us at Inside the Rope. It's a pleasure. Thanks, David. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.